Almighty God, creator of heavens and earth, all things visible and invisible. God, the fact that we even stand here right now is just a miracle of your creative power, that you spoke the world's and everything into existence, that you are the only thing that has never been created, that you have existed forever, and with your word, you spoke it all. And the very breath in our lungs, our lungs itself, God, is a testament to your power and your goodness and your provision that you hold all of this together. And so, God, we come to you now, and we joyfully... Look to your word to guide our lives, to give us the power and meaning and hope that we need, God, to live for you. And Lord, open our eyes to see the reality of who you are and of our heavenly future, God. And may it fill us with such incredible joy. And may we rejoice in the freedom and the power that you give us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I want to take you back to March 20th, 1775, <laughs> the Second Virginia Convention in Richmond. Patrick Henry stood to speak, and the British Army had mounted a formidable force to crush and subjugate the American colony. And many there at the convention had argued that there still needed to be negotiations made with the British government. And Patrick Henry proposed that a militia be prepared to fight for freedom. And he argued that after years of tyranny, that it was time to take a stand. It was time to stand and that to delay could really jeopardize the freedom of America. And so here are some of his words. Patrick Henry said this, the question before the house is one of an awful moment for this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But sir, we are not weak if we make proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people armed with the holy cause of liberty. And in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destiny of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is for the vigilant the active, the brave. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it not, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. You see, to Patrick Henry <laughs> and to the brave early patriots of our nation, the price and prize of freedom was worth dying for. It was worth the sacrifice. And yet, there's only one sacrifice beyond all time 
in any place that truly sets us free. And that is the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross to take the penalty of our sin, to pay the ultimate price for our rebellion against our creator God, so that me might be freed from unconquerable bondage. And that's what Paul speaks of when he says this in Galatians 5.1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, Paul's questioning why the Galatians would turn away from such a beautiful freedom that had been given to them from Christ at such a high price, only to return to bondage and slavery. Paul warns them of two great enemies that destroy freedom and grace, legalism and also license. Both of these poisons are rooted in the prideful heart of mankind the seed of which originated from the enemy of our soul, the deceiver, the destroyer, the devil, who himself rose up against God to declare himself his own God and to try to capture and steal the glory of God for his own pride and pleasure. And it's in this way that we are the enemy's offspring. We're born into this world as children of wrath with a heart bent on self-glorification. And when our forefathers, Adam and Eve, declared their independence from God, humankind committed treason, joined forces with the enemy, putting us under a sentence of death and condemnation before our Creator. And our deceitful hearts blind us from seeing the reality of who we are and whose we are. Our arrogant hearts turn against God and his sovereign rule over us. And although we can do our own thing, live our own life, our own way, according to our own desires. You see, our chains are invisible, yet they're not unreal. They bind our wrists and our ankles around our neck. And we're prisoners to self and to pride and to sin and to Satan, who is our master. And that's why the Bible says that the human heart is so desperately wicked and that there is none who does right not one, and that all our deeds are like filthy rags because really, even the best things that we do are for the motive of our own self-glorification. And the Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, children of wrath, while we fought to oppose him, Christ died for us. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took all of our sin, past, present, future, took it all upon himself on the cross. He bore the wrath of God, paid our debt to set us free. And as far as east as the west, our sin is gone, paid in full. And he offers this priceless gift to us for free. And if we accept it, God takes us in. He adopts us as his children. And he gives us his heart and binds his heart to our heart. It says that he puts his spirit in us. What a gift. What a gospel. And what a savior. 
See, Paul is so passionate about this letter to the Galatians because he's passionate about the glory of God and he's passionate about the good of the Galatians. And he's warning them that legalistic religion, trying to do it on our own, is just another pride-based self-glorification scheme to steal the glory of God. And this new community of, of Galatians, these baby Christians, you see, they're surrounded by enemies. Enemies of false teachers and false doctrine and false Christians. And Paul's beckoning to them to not allow the advancement of evil, but to take a stand. But to stand in the grace that God gives. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you agree that this is a time, that we live in a time when we need to take a stand. You see, our culture continues just to kind of bombard us. It pushes God further and further out. It's got us as Christians in a tight vice, continuing to pull and crank down on us. We're in a stranglehold and losing strength and resolve. And we need to know how to stand in our face so that we don't fall. And so that's what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Paul says about how to stand. And so we're going to Take a peek at this in Galatians 5, verses 1 to 15. So if you haven't yet, why don't you grab your message notes that are there in your program, in your connection card, and if you have a Bible, like I said, Galatians 5, 1 to 15 is what we're going to be looking at. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to kind of follow along with the key verses here on the screens. Now, the first thing that Paul tells us that we need to stand for is to stand firm against legalism. You can fill that in there. Stand firm against legalism. Now, when this letter came to the Galatians from Paul, he wrote it to the churches there. When they first saw the words stand firm, those were uh, words that they would recognize that came from the military. They were military words. And it would have brought to mind the picture in their head of the Roman army that pretty much dominated most of the known world at that time. You see, when under attack, the Roman army, what they would do is they would lock their shields together and plant their feet firmly into the ground. And they would have this wall of iron that they would stand firm against. Standing firm conveys this picture of, of, of readiness and alertness, of steadfastness, and resisting the enemy by banding together. And that's what Paul is calling the Galatians to do, to band together and stand firm. And this is what he says in Galatians 5, 2 to 4, and then 7 to 12. And before we go, Just to catch you up, if you haven't been here before, he's going to mention... Um, the rite of circumcision. And that may sound awkward, or why is he talking about that? It's basically representing the Jewish laws at that point in time. Circumcision was meant to be a sign of their covenant as God's people. But at that time, the Jewish people were looking at circumcision as kind of this pride thing. It represented all of them doing on their own, following the law to find favor with God, their own self-performance. So Paul says this, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What he's talking about here is that doctrine is important, and a slight variation can poison all of it. 
he says this, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. (laughs) As I said, Paul's pretty passionate here, making a point. So everything that we just read here, and even the, all the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul is building this case and talking about his argument against legalism. And again, just to review, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness and justification and acceptance by God through performance, by our own effort and obedience. See, legalism, it, it looks to God's acceptance through our own performance. And here's why this is lethal. And it's important to know the differentiation because that all sounds good. I mean, isn't that the way most of the media and culture portrays religion? Is It's kind of like these scales. And if we do enough good things, we get our way into heaven. But this is why that mindset is so lethal. And it is not the gospel. It's because grace and self-justification or works are diametrically opposed. They're opposite things and they cancel each other out. Grace from God is a free, undeserved, unmerited, unworked for gift because God knows that we can never do enough to be good enough for a holy and perfect God and loving judge. But the minute that we take grace and we try to add something to it through our own work, the minute we do that, we try to accomplish our own salvation on our own, we remove ourselves from grace. It's no longer grace at all. See, the salvation of Jesus Christ is complete and perfect, and we cannot and should not try to do anything to add to it, to try to earn our own salvation by our own works and being good or whatever we're trying to do is an attempt to trust in ourselves and our own works and our own righteousness. That's not the gospel. This undermines grace. It's like the guy, he had an autographed baseball by Babe Ruth. Now, this is quite a treasure. And he realized the baseball might be worth quite a bit of money. So he decided to try and sell it. But he'd had the baseball for quite a while, and the signature, Babe Ruth's signature, had begun to fade. So he took out a pen. And he began with his own hand to trace over the signature. Well, at that very moment when he did that, he completely destroyed the signature. He had taken something priceless, and by trying to add to what Babe Ruth had done, he completely made it worthless. We cannot add anything at all to the perfect sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross for us. And so just as legalism destroys grace, so in the same way does license or permissiveness. Now, Paul knew as soon as he told the great Galatians, you are free from the law. What he meant was they're free from trying to gain favor with God through the law. But what they took that is, oh, free from the law. That means there's no laws. (laughs) Party time. And they decided they were going to abandon God's law. And Paul needs to set them straight because he says that while the gospel sets us free, it doesn't set us free to sin. And so he says that we need to resist license. 
Resist license. You can fill that in. Now, while in legalism, we lose our freedom, in license, we abuse our freedom. See, license is similar to the words like licentiousness or lawlessness. It's kind of the um, mentality that assumes upon God and, and takes advantage of his grace. It's like when we say to ourselves, you know, hey, you know, this little sin, I'll just kind of let it slip. God will forgive me. Even if we don't say it to ourselves, it's kind of what we're thinking, right? Don't we do that? Some of us even adopt this as, as, as kind of our way of life, and we begin to live our lives in such a way we think that we're free, but we're living it in a way that it has nothing to do with Christ whatsoever. We've taken grace as a license to sin. And Paul gives this warning. He says in Galatians 5.13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, we're not given freedom in Christ to indulge in our flesh or our old sinful nature apart from God. It's our flesh that we've been freed from. Freedom in Christ is the freedom to obey Christ. It's not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. You see, you have to understand how binded we were and apart from God, and enslaved to our sin nature, the freedom that we have is that we're no longer slaves to that anymore. We're freedom to obey Christ. We're free to live in the way that Christ created us to live, in Him, in Christ. I love what um, Pastor David um, Platt says. He says this, you're free to experience the beauty and the glory and the joy of the presence of Christ in your life. That's what you're free to. Not free from Christ to do whatever you want. You're free to Christ to do whatever he wants. And God begins to transform your wants and transform your desires so that what you want is what Christ wants and not what the world wants and not what your old self wants, right? Titus um, 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace, it transforms us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we receive this new heart with new desires a desire to live for and please God. We long to walk in his ways. We long to follow his path because now we are in a relationship and our motive is genuine love for God. And this is where Paul begins to kind of unpack what the key to freedom and living in Christ is all about. He starts to talk to the Galatians about, he says, stand strong in the freedom of God's grace. You see, there's so much more to this freedom than we can even begin to understand or imagine. And Paul wants to remind the Galatians of this so they'll turn back to it again. And so he says this in Galatians 5, 5, and 6. Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we, offer, we, are, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
And this is what it means to be a follower of Christ, that instead of relying on our own righteousness and obedience, we rely on God to give us the righteousness of Christ by faith. And we look to Christ instead of ourselves. And in Jesus, you see, we have the ultimate hope and freedom. Paul says this is what Christian freedom is, that Christian freedom is to live through the Spirit, by faith, in hope, with love. We live through the Spirit instead of through the flesh. We live by faith instead of our own works. And we live in hope instead of anxious uncertainty. And we live with love instead of selfishness. So I want to just go through these last three things together with you. The first is to live through the Spirit. To live through the Spirit. Now when we live through the Holy Spirit, we live in the power and the presence of God's very Spirit inside of us. It is the character and person of, of Christ in us. And we're given access to internal guidance and counsel and power to live for God who motivates and empowers us to do his will. And I can't tell you, I'm really excited about next week's message because the next portion of this chapter talks exactly about how to be filled with the Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit and live in victory and freedom. So I'm not going to go into all that because that's next week, but I do want to just take a moment and I just marvel about the whole even concept that God would put his very spirit in those who trust their life to his, to help us walk and live in the freedom of grace. Remember Paul told us in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Wow. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And unites our lives with Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the Christian life even possible. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us power and is the key to our freedom and victory in Jesus. So I want to encourage you, like I said, to be here next week to hear more about this incredible power and gift that God's given you. All right. Next, Paul tells us that we're to live by faith. Live by faith. Now, Paul says that through the Spirit, we are to live by faith. And as we live um, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, the Spirit begins to kind of grow faith in our heart and our life. But there's also a very interesting responsibility that each of us have when it comes to faith. That it's something that we have to activate of our own will. You know, I've always been intrigued by the passage. There's a passage in Matthew 13 uh, verse 57, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's kind of in his hometown, and he says, you know what? I'm not able to do many miracles here because of the people's lack of faith. It's always intrigued me. It's almost as if God, if you think about it, has all this power and he's ready, but at the same time, he waits upon us to activate our faith and to walk in it so that then he can push his power behind it. Pastor Greg Laurie said, said this about faith. He says, faith can make the difference between something happening and not happening. God is the one who works, but he chooses to work primarily through human means. For example, God could have sovereignly caused the Red Sea to just part for the Israelites without the help of Moses. But instead, he told Moses to hold up his staff and walk forward as an act of faith so that people could cross over. God could have brought down fire on the altar at Mount Carmel without the prayer of Elijah. But he called Elijah to take a step of faith and to pray. And Jesus could have healed every single human being on earth when he was here. But what we see 
is that it was primarily those who reached out to him by faith who received his healing touch. I think of everything I studied this week, this thing has, this has intrigued me more than anything. You see, we have to live and act upon our faith. And many of us have never experienced God's power in our life because we've fallen into what some have called like a practical atheism. You know, where we say we believe in God, but we don't believe God. We say he's in our life, but we live our life every week as if he really doesn't exist. And we kind of ignore him. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this about faith. That faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things that we can't see. Living by faith is believing to the point of action. In fact, the, the Greek word for faith, it has a root word. It's rooted in the word to obey. See, living by faith is having complete confidence in God, which moves us into action, where we step out and trust that God is with us. You see, faith itself carries kind of an element of risk to it, doesn't it? But how it honors God when we trust him enough to take a step of faith. Faith is nurtured and grown by the Holy Spirit as we soak in God's words from the Bible as he speaks to us through his living word. And we choose to stand in belief and trust God as we endure through life's trials and temptations. There is a story in the Gospels, it may sound familiar, where a man brings his son to Jesus. And the son has been, you know, just tormented by demons. And the man asks Jesus, he says, if you can... Will you help my son? And Jesus says, if I can. <laughs> All things are possible for those who believe. You see, with faith, all things are possible. And our Christian life and freedom are dependent upon us to activate our faith. Next, Paul talks about that we're to live in hope. To live in hope. Now, um, when we say the word hope, in our English language, our common use of hope is kind of like this wishful thinking, right? I really hope that happens. I hope so. You know, it's kind of like the little boy. He's out in his backyard. He's giving himself a pep talk. He's got his little baseball cap on. He's got a ball and a bat. And he says to himself, I am the greatest hitter in the whole wide world. <laughs> and he tosses up the ball and he swings. Oh, strike one picks up the ball. I am the greatest hitter in the whole wide world. Oh, strike two. So the boy takes off his, puts, you know, spits on his hands, adjusts his cap, grips his bat really hard, throws that ball up. I'm the greatest hitter in the whole wide world. Strike three. I'm the greatest pitcher in the whole wide world. <laughs> That's an optimistic kid, right? <laughs> but see, that kind of that hoping idea, it's not at all what the biblical sense of hope is. See, biblical hope is so much more than that. It's grounded in actual assurance because, you see, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God, who is our firm, solid foundation. 
And so when Paul says that we wait for the righteousness, for the hope of righteousness, what he's saying is that we live with the guarantee of our right standing with God. And we live with the anticipated certainty of our future glorification and communion with him. He said this to the believers in Colossians. Paul said in Colossians 1.22, God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Some of us need to hear that today. Jesus Christ is our eternal hope. He has wiped our past clean. He stands with us firmly in our present, and he secures our future. That is a solid and assured hope. And you see, just like faith, living hope, it's more than just a concept that we lock away in our little brain. You see, our hope is a reality that's to move us into action. And this involves an act of our will where we stand and work, move forward and, and we act on this hope. We set our mind, direct our soul toward all that we've been given in Christ. You see, it involves thinking about and meditating upon the reality of our justification by God. Our communion with his spirit and our adoption as his children. Paul's talking about tuning our minds and our hearts into all that we are and all that we have in Christ so that our minds are renewed, our hearts are filled, and our actions fall in line with who we are now and whose we are now. To live in hope is to live in our new identity, see, the new creation that God's made us to be, and it's to live with an eternal mindset. You see, our eternity, when we talk about eternal life, it's not something far away. It's something that when we receive Jesus Christ, it says the Bible says Jesus Christ is eternal life. And that when we're in him, we now, our possessions, have eternal life. But there also comes a time when we look forward to the fullness of our righteousness in Christ, the moment when we're ushered into God's presence. And for the first time when we experience the power of his glory, the fullness of of his love and the full expression of the righteousness that we have in Christ. And Paul says that we look forward to that, that we long for it. And so while we're here on earth, you know, and we, we do what we can, but we stumble and we fall at times. We can say to ourselves, this isn't what I want. You know, I'm free from this. And I can't wait to experience the righteousness of Christ. That's what I want, to live for more and more every day, to live for Christ's righteous, righteousness through his spirit in faith. That is my hope. And last, Paul tells us that we're to live with love, to live with love. Galatians 5, 6 tells us that faith is, expresses itself through love. God is love. And so when we have God and we have God's spirit in us, his love is in us and it expresses itself through us. God's love flows through us. It's, it's the fruit of the spirit, the result of God's spirit in our life, the outpouring of Christ's life in us. And so now we are free to serve one another in love. 
We never could genuinely do that until we receive the freedom from the old nature and the power of Christ in us. And so Galatians 5, 13 to 15 says, through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. This was meant to what the law was supposed to all be about. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. See, when Paul, he says here, through love, serve one another. The Greek, which is the original language, when you translate it literally, it says, through love, become slaves of one another. <laughs> Think, Whoa, what's that about? But see, here's the deal. Now we are free from slavery to our own selfish desires so that we can freely serve one another in love. That's what Jesus and God does for us. It is the most beautiful thing. And we do this by applying what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, when he describes love this way. He says, to love is to look to, the other, to others' interests more than your own, right? And so it might be saying to ourselves and asking ourselves, you know, what can I do? What can I do right now to help somebody in need, someone that needs my support or encouragement? Someone that leads love. How can I help them see Jesus? Because the essence of love is to shift our focus, right? And it's to seek out what's best for others. It's self-giving. When we're focused on ourselves, it really just kind of hinders our ability to love others. And we can learn to love by asking the Holy Spirit to, again, to love through us and to shift our focus from inward to outward. And so, again, this Spirit-filled life is described as living through the Holy Spirit by faith in hope while we demonstrate God's love. And then Paul tells us when we're not doing that and when we're not loving others and serving one another, that our selfishness can lead us to bite and devouring one another. Like a pack of wild hyenas, which is nothing to laugh about. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says this, let love be your highest goal. Let love be your highest goal. Think about what it would be like to live through the Spirit, where God's Spirit is living in and through us and by faith, and God's love is permeating in us. We're living in the freedom of Christ, expressing His love to others, what sort of impact would that have on our life? And, and what would the impact be on the lives of those around us? And so, my friends, I encourage you, like Paul said, stand firm in the freedom that God has given you and live through the Spirit by faith in hope with love. Let's pray. Lord God, we're just uh, so grateful, so grateful um, that when we consider uh, who we were, that you embraced us and took us in as your children, and that you, God, want to empower us through your spirit. Lord, I know it's our heart to want to know how to do that more to understand in its fullest expression what does it mean 
to live in the freedom and the grace that you've given us, to be empowered by the Spirit, to walk, God, with incredible faith that we just see the world in a different way and we just expect different things from you, God, and that we stand in this hope that all though the world is crazy and just seems to be coming apart at the seams, that we could just stand like a rock because our hope is in you and not in what is around us. And that, God, that your love, just the fullest expression, God, what a beautiful thing it is, God, when we receive your love and we're able to pass that on to others. So, God, we want to just pray and ask that you would do that work in us. And, Lord, I want to pray for those that are here and um, I just remember, God, being in a spot where I just, it became apparent to me that I really didn't know you. I thought I did, but I realized that I didn't. And maybe there's someone here today, and maybe what they thought faith in you was, or what they thought religion was, they realize that that isn't exactly what the Bible says, and this isn't what you had in mind. And maybe, God, you put a desire in their heart that they want you, God. They want to be free from the shackles of their own desire to be their own self and their own God. And instead, they want to allow you to make their life new and beautiful. And so, Lord, I pray that you do. You open their heart. They would trust you. They would hear from your voice, God, that you would affirm that in their soul. And they would just simply release there's nothing they can do. They can't work for it. They would just give you their heart and say, God, I receive this gift. I receive this amazing gift. I embrace it. I make it mine. Change my life. What a miracle, God, that is. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.